0: Welcome to the Adirondack Lantern Podcast, the official podcast of the North Country Underground Railroad Historical Association, where our major goal is to foster understanding of the Underground Railroad history of Northeastern New York, and to celebrate its significance and its relevance to our own time. Welcome to the Adirondack Lantern Podcast. This is our January, or February, I'm sorry. Yeah of 2022 edition uh, my name is john mitchell and i'm joined by some of my fellow board members we have our board president mrs jackie madison how are you today jackie
1: i'm great i'm looking forward to this podcast that's coming out
0: excellent and we also have a fellow board member mrs andrea bear how are you
2: very good thank you
0: and we have the venerable robin Cadell. how are you today
2: robin i'm fine <laughs>
0: excellent so how's everybody doing anything exciting you enjoying the cold
2: weather Oh yes. <laughs> <laughs> you believe me?
1: <laughs> Not really.
2: <laughs>
1: uh, but we did have a brief uh heat wave. Yes. If yeah. you
0: call it that. <laughs> so heat wave for here was what it it got up to forty one day, I think. Yes. Right? Yeah, that is a, a heat wave for that's you. a no. summer
1: day. <laughs> it's funny, I
0: oh, I was telling one of our guests earlier that, you know, my, my mother still lives in Arkansas and she was telling me it was like 75 yesterday uh-huh. or, or something like that. But
2: it's funny, our family love to call and rub it in when they get the high temperatures, like in Georgia and Florida, you know. <laughs> it's okay. They
0: love to do that.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. But our area looks cleaner with the snow. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> yes, it does. Yes, it does. Well, it's been a minute since we did our last podcast, and so it feels great to get back in the swing here. Yeah. Uh, made me realize how much I've been missing this, you know, honestly there. Um, So I think we'll um, we'll get right into the meat of today's show. I'm very excited about it.
1: Yes, uh, we will now start with our mainline section of the podcast. Good afternoon. This is our mainline portion of the podcast. And today we have with us Dr. Richard C. Miller. He is the interim vice president for diversity, equity and inclusion. He was formerly vice provost and chief diversity officer at Western Kentucky University from 2006 to 2019. He is a native of Ithaca, New York. His teaching and administrative background in higher education spans over 40 three years. His focus on diversity related issues within the state of Kentucky has contributed to the establishment of the first statewide diversity policy in Kentucky. Dr. Miller received his bachelor of science and master's of science degrees in health and physical education from Ithaca College in 1969 and 71 respectfully. He earned his doctorate in exercise physiology from Springfield College in 1975, while serving as a research fellow. His teaching career began as an assistant professor at Bowie State University in 1975. After being appointed chair of the Department of Health and Physical Education, In 1976, he continued to teach human anatomy and physiology, exercise physiology, and kinesiology. Having attained tenure and the rank of full professor in 1984, Miller also served as acting director of athletics at Bowie State University for two years. As vice president, at WKU, Miller oversaw compliance with faculty personnel policies and procedures, validates full and part time faculty credentials, oversees the faculty and staff hiring procedures, and serves as the institution's liaison to the Southern Association of Colleges and Schools Commission on Colleges. As chief, Diversity Officer, he established the university's first Diversity Enhancement Committee and served on the Commonwealth of Kentucky's Statewide Diversity Enhancement Committee. He was a successful recruiter of minority faculty and staff as a result of funded minority faculty and staff incentive-based hiring and retention plans. Now we have Dr. Miller at SUNY Plattsburgh and we certainly welcome him to this community.
3: Well thank you. This is a a real pleasure to be in North Country. I guess that's how we used to refer to it when I was in Ithaca. And uh, I was here, my goodness, years ago when I was a young child. My parents used to bring us up to North Country to camp uh, and fish. Uh, I remember Lake Placid. I remember um, the surrounding area. It's always been very, very beautiful and attractive. So uh, coming back to this part of the state of New York uh, is a real delight, real pleasure for me.
1: Well, Dr. Miller, I guess I'll start out. You are our Interim uh, Diversity uh, Staff at the um, SUNY Plattsburgh. What do you anticipate in that role?
3: Well, there was a void. Um, the previous uh, vice president uh, had left the university, uh, and uh, there was a void. Uh, and I was fortunate enough to be asked to fill that void uh, while the uh, college uh, underwent a full-time search for a vice uh, vice president. So, um, my my desire is not only to hold the fort per se at the university, but also to continue keeping diversity on the forefront as the college moves forward with its strategic plan, uh, with all of its uh, the elements of diversity at the uh, at the institution, to support the students. The students are the key. Uh, uh, they're my heart. Uh, and uh, where I see uh, ways in which they uh, can become more prominent on campus, develop a sense of confidence being on a majority campus uh, is, um, is something that I hope to uh, promote among the student body. Uh, the key to diversity, especially predominantly white institutions, uh, is to keep the focus on diversity and not let it slide under the table, as I say. Because colleges and universities have so many priorities uh, these days, Uh, we simply cannot let the priority of recognizing the value of diversity slip away. Uh, That's one of the primary responsibilities of anyone that assumes the office of um, a vice vice president, vice provost, chief diversity officer on a campus uh, like uh, SUNY Plattsburgh.
0: It's interesting. Um, hearing you mention that it's important just to keep diversity kind of in the forefront. Um, it seems a lot now, um, I shouldn't say so much at school, but in other areas in the media, when it doesn't seem like diversity is the norm, it almost feels like a, like a bludgeon, you know what I mean, when you bring it up with certain people. Does that make sense at all or, or no?
3: Well, I think the, the, the changing demographics uh, is clear. Uh, Colleges and universities are always interested in attracting students to attend the institution. Uh, If the demographics of the student um, uh, bodies that are coming out of high school reflect uh, a browning of society, uh, institutions that don't take that into consideration are eventually going to render themselves insignificant. They aren't gonna be competitive. So they're going to have to focus on what are some of the the val- what's the value of a slight change in your culture to attract students of color, and if you don't have a structure on your campus that would be welcoming uh, and um, ways in which students can be successful, uh, you're not going to be a very attractive institution. So it's out of necessity in most cases because again. Uh, A large number of students coming out of uh, high schools right now uh, are non-white. That's the fastest growing demographic uh, in our country. There are more and more non-white students that are now appealing to colleges and universities. So these institutions have to be uh, attentive to these students. They have to provide not only a welcoming environment, but their structure must be such that these students are going to be successful and they're gonna be a contributing asset to the institution.
0: Thank you.
4: How does the conversation about diversity uh, change at predominantly uh, black like HBCUs?
3: Uh, That's a real interesting question, Robin. Most of the conversations and interests in diversity Involve predominantly white institutions. Not a lot is said. There's a lot of said about diversity among HBCUs. Uh, I've worked at two HBCUs uh, over a combined total of about 22 years. Uh, there's obviously a, a, a change in culture, a different culture. But really, the challenges that institutions, uh, HBCUs, and predominantly white institutions face are very much the same. Uh, One of the challenges that HBCUs have is trying to attract non-African-American students to their universities, Um, and that's a real challenge for HBCUs because the the culture of HBCUs is so deeply embedded uh, that it will be a major cultural change for non-African-American students to enroll. However, take a look at the enrollments of HBCUs right now. There's a larger percentage of non-African students, non-African-American students at HBCUs. There's a real incentive on the part of state governments, though, to um, move in that direction, and that incentive is mostly money. Um, Non-African-American students are offering scholarships now. At HBCUs, those are minority scholarships. Uh, no, uh, whites are not a minority as it as it uh, relates to HBCUs so um, uh, it's a challenge but you're, you're seeing some demographic change on HBCUs and this is especially true when HBCUs are more strongly supported by state governments more money for uh, teaching assistance more money for uh, for research um, Those, and stronger academic programs that are less competitive with predominantly white institutions, those are some real incentives offered by HBCUs to attract um, non-African American students at HBCUs.
1: Okay, Uh, I know you have sort of interacted with the school staff and faculty and students, but have you had a chance to really uh, get out and sort of interact with the community? uh leaders
3: not yet jackie i mean i first start to step foot on uh, the suny plattsburgh campus on february one so here we are almost three weeks three plus weeks so i haven't had a chance to stretch my legs a little bit in fact i'm still trying to get used to the campus where all the buildings are (laughs) (laughs) but uh but uh, I, uh, with the help of Barbara and Chris and, and some of the others, uh, they are getting me inculcated into the culture of, uh, Plat- of Plattsburgh and um, hopefully get out and about and meet people, not only from the campus, but also from the Plattsburgh community as well.
4: Uh, can you tell us how you got on this diversity road? Now, What was your first entree into
3: this? Oh, my goodness. Um, It really started when I realized uh, that um, when I was a freshman at Ithaca College, uh, I was one of two African-American males in my entire freshman class. Uh, And For me, uh, it was not so much an adjustment because I was from Ithaca, but at the same time coming into contact with students, predominantly white students from all around the country, Uh, It became important for me, for me to get to know them uh, and for them to get to know me. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I realized then it's really important that it was a learning experience on the part of both me and my classmates to become comfortable with with each other. uh, Recognize that the only differences between us simply was the color of our skin. Everything else, we, we, we shared the same concerns. So uh, it started there, but then when I went to um, uh, Springfield College, uh, again, I was always a minority. I was always one of the first. Uh, I was one of the first research fellows at Springfield, uh, one of the first doctoral students, African-American doctoral students. So I've always been a first and for me it's always been an opportunity to engage others who didn't look like me didn't went from the same background to learn from them and from them to learn from me and i can't tell you how many times i've had people come up to me to say um now that we know you we are more comfortable with you now we can ask these questions that heretofore they were reluctant to ask for fear of being labeled, labeled a racist, for fear of being labeled ignorant. But once they got to know me and once they got to be comfortable with me, then things started to flow. And that's how I have, I've seen it throughout, for the most part, my career. And as I said to my students when I was at the HBCUs, you've got we, have, we as an institution have got to provide those experiences for you that you can engage with people who are different from you, different cultures, different religions, different races. Because once you graduate from that institution, you're going to move into a world that is very globally oriented, very multicultural. And if you are not comfortable in that world, you're gonna have a difficult time adjusting and you're going to have a very difficult time being successful. So while you are in school, It's our responsibility to provide you these experiences before you leave the institution so that you have a sense of confidence in your ability and your skill set when you leave the institution into a world of work. And so um, I have valued my race, my, uh, uh, my culture, to the extent where hopefully others can learn from me uh, maybe a little bit more than I can learn from them because I was born and raised in a predominantly white culture. So, um, but I've always said to institutions, administrations in particular, at the institutions where I've been, give the students an opportunity to engage with people who don't look like you, don't uh, have the sa- same socioeconomic experience as you, because if you don't do it, then I think we failed these students we literally failed them. Uh, and when you put it that way, I think more and more people that are in a position to make these changes or to make these experiences possible uh, more relevant.
1: It can be very difficult if you have only been around one culture to sort of start to intermingle with the variety of cultures. Mm-hmm. What tips would you provide someone who was in that position?
3: Well, I ask students that are in that situation, uh, what are you here for? I mean, you're here to get an education. But what else are you here for? You're here to get a job and make a living for you and your family. And in order for you to make a job and make a living, you're going to have to relate to people who don't look like you, who aren't from the same background as you. That's how you become successful. And, uh, and so when you look at it from that perspective, that kind of long range perspective, that's what I say to students. Uh, I understand the challenges that uh, students of color face on predominantly white institutions, believe me. I've lived it myself. But at the same time, I have the advantage of seeing the, um, uh, the outcome of having those experiences. Students don't have that advantage because they're still in the pipeline. <laughs> but I think we all are frustrated sometimes when we deal with young people because we know the challenges that they're going to face because we've experienced a lot of them in our own lives, but they have not So you have to give them an opportunity to learn uh, and not expect them all of a sudden overnight uh, to have that kind of uh, uh, that kind of experience. <laughs> So I, I ask them, what is it, why are you here? What is it? What's your goal? And if they're honest, they're going to say, Well, I want to I want to establish a skill set that's going to set me up for success. And success these days is having an opportunity to engage in a global world, a global society. And I tell students all the time: if you have an opportunity to travel abroad do it because in most cases those kids come back transformed Mm -hmm. they really are they transformed i've been to brazil mexico um uh ecuador canada (laughs) canada but and, and and that experience of learning from other people listening to how they live and the challenges that they have you come back you're more sensitive, you're more globally oriented, you're more socially conscious, uh, and you're more sympathetic. Because you realize, even though we have challenges in our country, uh, we have it pretty good. And, and, uh, but those are the lessons that are learned by students when you give them those experiences, the opportunity for those experiences.
4: Do you think um, your role and those of other diversity officers are more challenging given the divisive rhetoric coming out of Washington, DC?
3: Yeah, Robin, it's very discouraging. Uh, it really is because I think we've, we've kind of lost focus in so many different uh, ways. Um, I was telling Barbara not too long ago, when you hear about Black Lives Matter, when you hear about critical race theory Those terms have been bastardized so many times. I remember talking to a Catholic priest who was asking me some questions about BLM. He said, you know, all he heard about was radicals, radical, you know, African-Americans. And I said, well, think about it for a moment. Black Lives Matter started as a result of African-Americans being sick and tired of being mistreated by law enforcement. That's how BLM started. Now, others have taken that and they have blown it up into, you know, we're radicals, we're this and that. Think about the origins of it. Same thing with critical race theory. We've been teaching critical race theory in this country for years. It's a part of the history of our institution. Why would you deny students in public schools, white students in particular, an understanding of the history of our country? Is there systemic racism in our country? Yes. Why not at least explain that to students? You know, not blame them because of their, their, their race, but explain systemic racism. Show examples of systemic racism. Talk about slavery, the history of this country, uh, with African Americans. It's a part of our history. It's a part of our culture. And, and so it's history that critical race theory is now when you try to expand beyond that, I think it becomes problematic. But people have to understand we've been we've been teaching critical race theory agnostic, I mean, from you know years and years and years ago. Unfortunately, some areas they don't go they don't go as far as they should. I mean, when I was in high school, were we taught you know African American history? No. We weren't. Mm-hmm. I had to learn it from talking to people, looking at documentaries and things of that nature. Uh, I didn't know what an HBCU was when I was in high school. Uh, until I saw television, I saw Grambling State play Morgan State in Yankee Stadium.
5: <laughs> you know,
3: and then I started asking questions about it. So, not, it, it's, not a, it's not a level playing field when it comes to understanding uh, African American history. And I'm sure uh, Jackie and some of the folks here at the Underground Railroad certainly understand that. Uh, you know, this is a history trevor, This is a history treasure trove uh, to come here and understand um, more about uh, the Underground Railroad and the history of our people. Um, but again, it's not always taught at a level um, that it should be a complete understanding because it just isn't. So. When students become more aware and, and, and understanding, their eyes become opened, uh, they are more enlightened, they better understand what students are going through because a lot of them have their parents have exp- you know, experienced uh, racism and discrimination. So, um, you know, there has to be a level playing field uh, in terms of how we share our history uh, with uh, majority populations. I remember when I was at Benedict, we had one we had one white girl uh, who was on our campus. This young lady, I mean, she jumped in and wanted to be a member of a sorority. I mean, she jumped in like uh, this was a, you know, an environment that she felt fruitful and she wanted to be a participant and wanted to be an asset. I asked her about it. I said, don't you feel like a fish out of water? <laughs> She said, yeah. She says, I, I understand what, what it's like to be a minority uh, on a majority campus, on an HBU campus. But she said, I wanted to be a part of this institution. And to be a part of the institution, I'm going to jump right in and, and have, all the op- that I have all the opportunities that, that the black, uh, black students had. And when she, be- when she pledged a, sor- a black sorority and was embraced, um, she felt one of us. Uh, race didn't bother her. So, again, it's giving people the experience of having exposure uh, in an environment that's somewhat different from that which you're familiar with.
1: You know, we have a lot of um, like Black History Month this month in February and then we have uh, the, I think November is when we have the Indigenous Peoples Mm -hmm. Month. What do you think we should really think about having a diversity, Mac, so we can all intermingle?
3: <laughs> I, I think you're going to see more and more of that happening. Part of the problem is when you have a pie and you start, and, and, and you can, that, that pie is for you. If that pie begins to be sliced some for Asian Americans, some for Hispanic Americans. How are African Americans going to feel? Because that pie isn't going to get any bigger. It's just going to be sliced. So African Americans are going to think, well, wait a minute, Uh, you're taking from us to give to others. And you know how possessive we can be. I mean, this is our history, our month. African Americans have to be cautious about that and conscious about that. Um, We used to be the only game in town we are not the only game in town anymore when you look at the demographics out there. And this is especially true to the fastest growing racial demographics in our country, and that is biracial students. Mm-hmm. Those are the young people that we cannot, you know, kind of mix in with everybody else. And and, and to a certain extent, you know, they are in a dilemma because it's a mix of cultures. And uh, we have to be sensitive to that. So in, in every respect, the number of African-Americans and the resources that are given to African-Americans are being sliced. And we have to be real careful about that to the point where we don't all of a sudden become relegated to becoming a, becoming a second-class minority. And sometimes we we feel that we're no longer the minority, and that's a, a an artifact of the demographic changes that we're experiencing.
0: It's very interesting that you that you mention that, um, as far as from the biracial standpoint, my, my daughter, well, both my daughters, are are biracial in this. One thing that I find interesting or a dilemma that she has regularly is it's not even so much being kind of excluded from either group, but almost feeling as if the different groups want her to choose.
3: Yeah, mm-hmm. You know what I
0: mean? And, and and that's something that just regularly, you know, she'll have different scenarios or situations that'll come up to where someone may say something derogatory about a group and they'll look at her and say, but well, that's okay. you're You're one of us. You know what I mean? Right. Or on right. both sides of the fence. So
3: mm-hmm.
0: it's definitely something to be concerned with. Yeah.
3: yeah, yeah. I worry about that. My grandchildren are biracial, right. and so it gets to be very personal, you know, too. But you want every student to feel comfortable wherever they are, and to be confident. And I think confidence is the key. Uh, you're going to be a minority, or you're going to be other than the majority in many situations. But if you can go into those situations confident in your skill set and your ability to um, survive in a, in a different environment, uh, that's the key. You can't be tentative. You know, you simply can't. Black students on a white campus are too often very tentative for a good reason. But that doesn't mean you can't um, want to be involved in every aspect of college life, whether it's sports or theater or uh, fraternity sorority you know you have to go into those experiences with a fair amount of confidence knowing that look i may be different from you but i can be a real asset to this organization or to this sport team because of who i am and my experiences and uh, notwithstanding my race
0: thank you for that i mean that's very insightful it also stood out a lot to me what you mentioned about once people are out of school and out in the real world, they're going to be forced into that global population, whether they realize it, you know, or not. And I wonder how you feel like if 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 students or children are exposed to that, like you mentioned, ahead of time, like being able to get out and travel and whatnot, would we have some of or less of the issues that we have, um, you know, today that people may be learning, you know, through observation from their parents or whatever by not being able to get out and experience other cultures.
3: I think when our majority students start raising questions and expressing concerns about a lack of diversity, we're making some headway. I remember when I was a dean at Ithaca College, we had a young physical therapy student, uh, a white female from Long Island, very affluent young lady from a very, very very rich family, um, was given a clinical affiliation assignment Now, this young lady hadn't dealt with black people hardly in her entire life. I mean, she was born with a sewer spoon in her mouth. The thought of her going to Harlem to spend eight weeks was terrifying to her. Uh, Her parents called and said, we don't want our daughter to go. And this was my first year as a dean at Ithaca. And the person that could only overturn her affiliation was the dean. Can you imagine the expression on her face when she walked into my office? and <laughs> saw that I usually, you're going to have to deal with an African-American dean. I wish I had a, a photo of that. But, you know, we sat down and we had a very, very good conversation. She was a delightful young lady. She really was. But she was scared, understandable. Well, I didn't, I didn't change her affiliation. So she had to go, kicking and screaming to Harlem Hospital to spend eight weeks on her clinical affiliation. After those eight weeks, she came back to the campus and made an appointment with us, to see me. And she said, I want to tell you, those were the most learning, wonderful eight weeks I have ever experienced in my life. And she, was, she thanked me for not changing her affiliation. Here's an example. Of giving someone an opportunity to be exposed into a different environment. And then she started asking questions about, well, why aren't we even more diverse on the campus? Mm-hmm. So when white students start asking questions and expressing concerns about a lack of diversity, we're making some headway. Mm-hmm. This one young man who was a senior, when I asked him, what was it about the program that you liked? Tell me some things about the program that you didn't like. Tell me some things about things that we can do better. And he said to me, "I really enjoyed my four years of education at Ithaca College, except when we when we went and studied burns, first and second third degree burns on patients." He looked at me and he said, "I don't know what a burn looks like on a person whose skin color is dark." Hmm. And I think we need to correct that.
5: Mm-hmm.
3: And I said, you're absolutely right. So, and again, when a, when a white student starts asking questions about a lack of diversity and why, because that was going to affect him when he left and became a physical therapist and having to perform uh, uh, his job functions. So that was a very insightful observation that we quickly made a change when we... Uh, you know, looked at the curriculum and how they studied uh, Burns. So we're, we're beginning to see some more of that. It's taken a good while, but uh, people are beginning to realize if we don't have adequate, an adequate amount of diversity on our campus, people start asking why. And it's, it's incumbent upon the faculty and the administration To do whatever they can to try to attract more people and students of color on our campus
1: what you said about those students asking about you know the student that went to harlem and then the student that was asking about burns on people of color it really makes you lead uh think about the idea that it will take the children to lead us (laughs)
3: exactly exactly um, you know, on, on a university campus, you have people coming from uh, different backgrounds. And when you've got a faculty that is relatively entrenched, the, they aren't going to move very much. Uh, I had a case at another institution in the law school where the new dean wanted to hire more you know, faculty of color and uh, recruit more students of color in the law school. Well, a couple of professors, one in particular, uh, was very resistant, mm-hmm. very adamant about that. And the dean asked me, what uh, What could he do to try to convince this person? I said, well, you know, there's only so much you can do. You can't legislate behavior, you just can't. But if this guy is as, doing as much damage uh, as he was doing, then you ought to consider what I call the nuclear option. And the nuclear option is to bring that person into your office, sit them down, look at them straight in the eye and say to that person, I'm gonna take away all of your classes. I'm gonna take away all of your advisees of students. I'm gonna take away all of your committee assignments. You are to come to work every day at 8.30. You are to leave at five. I'm going to remove you from causing any damage or harm to our efforts to diversify this unit. Mm-hmm. We, in other words, we're going to consider you irrelevant. Put them off to the side and then move on. You can't allow a couple of naysayers to detract you from the important work of trying to improve diversity in your programs. And uh, that's kind of an extreme, but sometimes That's what you have to do. You have to put them off to the side and work with the other people to try to get them to understand how important it is uh, to have people of color on your faculty, people of color in your student body, and not allow one or two people to dissuade that, uh, that effort.
2: Well, hello, Dr. Miller. My name is Andrea Baer. I'm sorry I'm a little late. To That's present. okay, Andrea.
3: <laughs> but um,
2: it's, it's just a pleasure to sit down and listen to your talk and know that you are representing our local communities, our town. We welcome you here. Thank you. Because um, it's been long overdue, and we've had someone else before, but... Um, it's good to see the continuation to have you here to continue that work because yes, we do need that. And not only are they talking about these topics in school more now, but it's also coming into our communities at lunch tables. People are discussing these topics now and it's very uncomfortable for our I hate to use words black and white, but this is what it's all about. Mm -hmm. And it's very uncomfortable for our our white neighbors who has never had the reasons to discuss these things before. And now it's being forced, whether you want to or not, it's coming, so you have to talk about it. And now they're opening up to talk to us Mm -hmm. and to hear our sides. And even though it's going to take a while for them to be at the stage where that will be comfortable for them, it wasn't comfortable for us all these years, mm-hmm. over 400 years to live mm-hmm. under those burdens, but we are willing to work and to keep the conversation going. But I also want to go back to something you said earlier, and just to clarify, because I don't, I'm not sure I got it right. I don't want others to misinterpret what you were saying about that pie that you were discussing earlier, about us having a pie and sharing pieces with other races. I don't think you're saying that we're doing this fight just for black freedom, just for the black people. Because in this fight... You're seeing all different races coming in and helping. We're looking for equality for all. Mm -hmm. And we don't want to walk away with people thinking we're doing this, but the Spanish has to do their own. The Asians has to do their own. The Indians has to do their own. This is not what this is all about. And I don't think that's what it means when you say we are cutting up the pies and we have to be careful that we're shearing ourselves out. Let am I me, am I correct?
3: Yeah, I'm glad you asked that question. Yeah. Let me clarify that. Yeah. Okay. Um, when uh, an ethnic group or a racial group feels that the resources that they have been given uh, are being taken away and given elsewhere,
5: mm-hmm.
3: it only means that we have to make sure that what is... Well, what is... Um, uh, partialed out for others doesn't mean that we can't continue to fight for our peace okay. that, that that's all mm-hmm. um, a lot of it has to do with uh individuals who feel well we'll give them a little bit of this and keep them quiet and if you give them a little less and less and less that's not the that's not the interest of that particular racial group right. so if they're parceling out that pie, then our responsibility is to make sure that what is being shared with our brothers and sisters we continue to to reap. Perfect. Excuse me. That's what I'm saying. Um, great,
2: great. I knew I knew there was a Excellent explanation yeah. there, and I just wanted you to clarify a little more, because it could be yeah. misunderstood in a different way. Yeah. So thanks no, for that. No, thank you for the thanks
3: question, for that. because I certainly didn't mean it that way. Oh, I know, I know. <laughs> when when I we know. talk about supporting our brothers and sisters, that's exactly what I mean. Mm-hmm. Um, because, again, as I was saying earlier, we're becoming much more diverse. Yes. And even within the African-American community, there is diversity. Mm-hmm and we have to recognize that and others have to recognize that too um i have seen cases where uh just within our own community there is a struggle for resources Mm -hmm. and 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 there's jealousies and uh and then you would hope that there's animosity uh, among people in our own race especially Mm -hmm. when you're coming from different socioeconomic backgrounds Mm -hmm. The kids at, at SUNY Plattsburgh from New York City, the African American students from New York City, are very different from the African Americans that are coming from uh, the Southern Tier and and the Niagara region. Okay. We can't label all. We can't allow all of us to be labeled as one. There is diversity, and we have to recognize that and appreciate that. So sharing of resources and supporting our brothers and sisters is critically important. Yes. But we have to keep focusing on not losing the resource component of our support mechanisms that we, that we had in the past.
2: Excellent. Thank mm-hmm. you.
1: I would like to thank you, uh, Dr. Miller for coming and sharing those insightful thoughts with us. You're welcome. And it will certainly, uh, have me thinking, especially the nuclear option. <laughs> <laughs> uh. and that not only se persang-
3: just the academia either. <laughs> oh,
1: I, I was thinking that. Yeah.
0: Uh, <laughs> I think that's Jackie's way of saying she's going to remove me from all
5: activities.
1: <laughs> John is kidding, you know that. I know. <laughs> but the other thing is, I can sort of relate when you talked about the uh, students from the city, and from. Uh, our area being different, although they are of the same cultural background. And I can share that um, I had relatives. I lived in the country in the Carolinas, and uh, they would come down from New York City, and I call them the uppity (laughs) 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 cousins because they came down with a lot of demands, like Uh, where is the bathroom? I can't use that one. It's not up to my standards. (laughs) (laughs) Or they would say, who eats this kind of food, you know? So uh, we labeled them the uh, city mouse, and we would actually do little things to undermine them. (laughs) (laughs) And, And I think sharing some of those stories, when people share some of those stories and they can relate, I think it helps them understand diversity, too. Yeah, it does. So we really appreciate what you have shared with us today, and thank you for well, coming.
3: Well, thank you for the opportunity. This has been an educational experience for me, coming here and, mm-hmm. and uh, getting to know a little bit more about uh, the Underground Railroad, mm-hmm. um, which you know sometimes you learn it just simply being exposed to it. So thank you for the invitation. I really appreciate it.
0: Yes, thank you so much for being here.
2: <laughs> Wow, that was excellent. It was so good just to hear his view coming into our community and, and, and his, what it, so far what he has experienced and bringing the knowledge that he has from coming from another state. And it's just good to see the growth in our communities, right?
0: Absolutely. Definitely a wealth of information from
2: Yes. The- I think that what really sounded to me
1: was the fact that we need to promote the importance of our children and our young people that they need to value themselves Mm -hmm. much more than they are valuing themselves Mm -hmm. now. Mm -hmm.
0: True, that's great insight.
2: Wonderful, we've come a long way.
0: (laughs) Okay, Um, now I think that we will actually move into our um, Adirondack moment.
4: Hi, I'm Robin Caudell. I'm here with uh, podca- fellow podcasters, Andrew Bear and John Mitchell. And we want to welcome Naromi Joseph, who is the owner of Opulence Beauty in Plattsburgh. And this is a new business located, is it 131 Cornelia Street, the address? Yes,
6: that's yes. correct.
4: 131 Cornelia Street downtown Plattsburgh. And we just want to know uh, some of your background and why you decided to open up this business amidst the pandemic.
6: <laughs> okay, so like you mentioned, my name is Naomi Joseph, I'm 35, mother of two and a wife-to-be in June. Okay, um, congratulations. Yeah. <laughs> thank you, thank you. Uh, I've been in Plattsburgh on and off for quite some time. I originally came to Plattsburgh because of my parents. I was living so I'm originally from Brooklyn, New York, but I lived in Canada and from Canada my parents decided that they wanted to come back to live to the United States, but they didn't want to quite go back to Brooklyn because they didn't want to live a crazy hectic life and raise their children there. So they settled in Goodall Plattsburgh. So by the time I got we got they got to Plattsburgh, I was in college, and when I graduated, I decided on my own that I wanted to go back to Canada to attend school, so that's when I left, and then after being in Canada 10 years, almost 10 years on my own, I decided to come back to Plattsburgh. at that time. Um, my mom had passed, my dad was still living here, and he just wanted family to be closer, since, you know, none of us were, like, married or in relationships at the time, so he was like, why not be all just, you know, reunite like and be close to each other, so that brought me back to Plattsburgh again. I kind of had to start from fresh and get you know accustomed again to the plazberg life and then i found myself doing odds and end jobs just to be able to you know live some sort of a normal life and you know pay my bills and be able to have some type of normalcy and from that not really working in what i went to school for i've always like i always knew i had a craving and an urge to become an entrepreneur Mm -hmm. i come from a family background that On my mom's side there's like five generations of entrepreneurs and on my dad's side there's like three generations so Mm. i grew up listening to stories of entrepreneurship and you know my grandmother owned her own restaurants and i had my aunt own a salon my father himself ventured in his own um, self-owned businesses as well so i always knew it was something that i wanted to do but because i came from a, a haitian background family they drilled in our head that it's important for you to be a doctor, a nurse, an engineer, a lawyer. Um, anything else, <laughs> anything else kind of has no value or not in my house kind of a thing. So, going to school, even though I, I wanted to pursue cosmetology of right off the bat from high school, my parents were like, No, 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 that's like a That's a pastime. That's not a serious job. So, you know, you need to go to school for a serious, that's how they would say, you need to go to school for a serious job. So I kind of did what I had to do to please everyone around me. I knew that I had a passion for hair because growing up as a child and growing up my, my elementary years, I did in the city. So my mom wasn't great with hair. I have very coarse, coarse, thick hair. So she didn't really know how to manage it. So, she would just do whatever she can do to send me to school. And I used to get teased at school because of my hair. They're like, oh, your mom doesn't love you because she doesn't do your hair right. And things like that. So, you know, I would come home and I'd be like, mom, yeah, it's crazy. Like, I would come and be like, mom, they say you don't love me because my hair doesn't look right. And my mom's like, oh, my God. Like, pay these kids no mind. You have a roof over your head. You have food to eat. Mm -hmm. You got clothes on your back. Trust me, I love you. Mm -hmm. So I remember one of the times, the last time somebody teased me, I came home and I said to my mom, and I have a little sister as well. So I was like, mom, this is the last time I'm getting teased and I don't want my little sister to be teased like I was teased. So I'm going to make it my mission to know how to do hair. And she's like, go for it. So my mom, my aunt, my grandmother, my cousins they all literally let me use them as my experiment project. Like, (laughs) I've done perms, straightening. And I was a young girl, so it was like, you know, it was quite, like, now that I'm older, I'm like, it's quite interesting that they trusted (laughs) me to to do all these experiments and learn, and I just, I just, from trial and error, it just became a passion, and I learned, and then as social media and the internet, you know, took took over the world, I had access to learn and, you know, study and, and practice this craft that I like, I really wanted to do, but my parents wouldn't allow me to go to school. To do. Mm. So it developed this craze in me. So I started taking online classes. I continued my trial and error and practicing on everybody else. And then when the pandemic hit, my son um, has an autoimmune disease and I was working I was supposed to be working full time, but I was working kind of like part time. So they were giving me like one week, 40 hours and next week, 10 hours, because the pandemic was like, so iffy. I was like, you know what, this is the time someone mentioned to me, like, you know, you qualify to stay home with your child and get the pandemic release until you figure out what's going on. Mm. And at first, I didn't want to do it because I've been working since I was 15 years old. And Working with immigrant parents, that's like the main thing they tell you. Like, you you have to work. You got to do this. You got to do that. Yes. So it was instilled in me. Like, a work ethic was instilled in me. You know, you have to save money. You have to make sure you have a backup plan. You have to have 90 days of whatever it costs you to live, monthly, save aside in case of an emergency. It's always a what if, what if, what if. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So at first, I was like, no. And then I thought about my son and his health. And my fiance was like, listen, I'm working. My income is enough to support our life without all the extras so let's get rid of the extras and you stay home so I decided to stay home and then like three or four months in things started getting a little tougher so I was like you know what it's time for me to put my side up my pride aside and apply for this pandemic and then I, that's what I did after like four months of being home then I got approved so I said you know what I'm kind of at a point in my life before the pandemic release ended I'm like I'm kind of point in my life where I'm kind of starting at zero like I'm a new mom I'm also a mom for a kid that has, you know, special needs and health issues. I wasn't happy at the job that I was at and I'm not there right now. So I said, maybe it's time that I actually, you know, put me first and Mm -hmm. pursue this dream that I've had for so long.
5: Mm -hmm.
6: And it just happened from that. I just took on from that. I I worked with um, the small medium business department at Clinton. Um, I worked with them for quite a few months. And then I remember when I was supposed to do my business proposal and everything, I kind of got scared. So I just let everything go kind of a thing. And then I got pregnant. So I was like, oh, you know what? It's a sign. Maybe I shouldn't do this. <laughs> and, then <in> the, <laughs> and then in the midst of my pregnancy, I was like, you know, I'm also like, I'm really into God and I pray a lot. And I believe like, okay, God, you know, you'll help me, you'll show me the way, you'll do this, you do that. And during my pregnancy, when I'm like, I'm realizing in my head that, I'm about to have a second child. So everything is about to be harder. And for me to go back on a work the working market and, you know, a kid with special needs, a, a new baby, not knowing what I really want to do to work for somebody, I was like, you know what? I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna do it. And I just did it. I just woke up just one random day and I I told my fiancé I was gonna do it and he's like, I have your back. I called my sister and my dad and I'm like, I'm gonna look for a spot. I'm gonna rent it. I'm just gonna do it and they both were like um okay this is kind (laughs) of really random but if that's what you want to do do it
5: Uh and
6: i did it i I just i did everything together and we already had a family vacation planned i think two weeks into me planning opening the business so i like started everything went on vacation came back and just launched Uh been back from there
2: Well, congratulations! And I say sometimes we underestimate our powers, (laughs) and then you ask yourself, "Why?" We really do. Yeah, you ask. Now you can ask yourself, "Why didn't I do this before a long time ago?" But I just want to say I'm happy that you finally did it, and you did it here in Plattsburgh, upstate New York, where you're so well needed. We needed you here, girl, because yes. <laughs> not yes. many um, beauty parlors around um, can handle ethnic hair. So I am just happy that you're here. And, um Definitely. Yes. And I have to come see you and, soon. You know, because... the pandemic... <laughs> Go ahead.
6: Oh, you're welcome. You're welcome anytime. The pandemic kind of helped me with making that decision and doing it in Plattsburgh Because I remember talking to my family. They're like, why would you want to do that in Plattsburgh? There's nothing there. Don't you want to leave and go somewhere else? And I yeah. said, you know what? That- Being that I have natural hair mm-hmm. during the pandemic, my normalcy, I was like, okay, I order hair again. I do my hair myself, but I would order it and do it. Mm-hmm. Now I was like, I'm ordering hair. And they're like, well, this isn't back order. You'll get it in a month. You'll get it in two months. You'll get it in three. So mm-hmm. I did a, a period of like maybe five months where I've been natural for almost going on four years. Mm-hmm. But I was always wearing protective styles. So it never bothered me being natural. Yeah. And now I'm natural and I don't have the hair to do the protective style. <laughs> so I had to style my natural hair. And I was like, whoa, what was I thinking? This yes. is a lot of work. This is crazy. I'm like, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna go back to the perm, <laughs> you
5: know. relax
6: my hair and call it a day. And then every time I was supposed to relax it, I was like, no, let me wait another month. And I'm like, you know what? This is time for me to do this because if we had a beauty store in Plaza, you know, I wouldn't have to wait for hair to come and mm-hmm. the you world. Know? I wouldn't mm-hmm. have to, you know,
2: suffer. So I was like, you know what? I'm gonna do it. This is this is my sign. I'm gonna do it, and I'm glad that I did it. Let me tell you, this pandemic has shown a lot of us and take us back to our natural roots. I'm telling you, we've been all been doing our own hair, and it forces us to see what we have and to just work with what we have. And now that we're out and we can go about, we tend to stick to our natural um, hair products and, and and stay to our natural style. Because like myself, I used to have relaxers and then I stopped. And the pandeg- pandemic helped me to embrace my natural hair 100%. and so now when i come Definitely. to visit you i want to have my natural curls so i'm glad that you're here to help me manage this and not only that teach us teach Definitely. us teach us how you know to treat our hair because we didn't do this before it's all about chemicals and even though i'm not saying anything is wrong exactly. with that because there's a lot of people that went back to you know using chemicals are you also um, can help in that situation as well, right? So, yeah, what services Yeah, you know, I you always offer? say to everyone, um,
6: um, so I always say to people, you, you know, do what works for you and what's comfortable for you. Right. If you want to wear your hair processed, you wear your hair processed. If you right. want to wear it natural, that's also acceptable. You know, you do what works for you. Um, what I specialize in is protective styles, of course, like crocheting, braiding, weaving, okay. Um. Uh, I also, you know, natural hair, like natural hair treatments and stuff. Yes. Uh, like I said, I've been natural for four years. So I know, I know the trend of, you know, buying every single product on the shelf because <laughs> someone told you it works. Yes. Or you saw an infomercial <laughs> or on social media, somebody's promoting it. And, you know, I I went from buying products from only black owned to whatever's on the shelf mm-hmm. or whatever. It's like the next phase of trend. So, I know the expense that goes behind it and how much money that goes into, you know, trying these products, you try it, it doesn't work, so you put mm-hmm. it on the shelf, you never use it again and you mm-hmm. go buy another plethora of product,
5: mm-hmm. put it
6: on your shelf again. So what I've learned with being natural, that worked best for me, because like everybody has different types of hair porosity, they have different type hair types. Mm-hmm. Some people on one head, you might see 4A, 4B, and 4C hair in oh, one nice. on that one person and different porosity, it wow. happens. Yes. So what I've learned was the best thing for me with being natural, is treating your hair with natural products mm-hmm. so with, what i'm trying to say is that for me what worked for me was using pure aloe vera for moisture for moisturizing my hair and retaining the texture of my hair yeah. um rice water treatments for those who have low um the fibrosity of hair and um you know for hair growth mm-hmm. uh i experienced with like the mayo the avocado the eggs yes. you know and for me that was the best Thing for my hair like it didn't matter what product I purchased right. my hair started getting I, I always I always had natural thick hair but with my two kids what I experienced six, six months old I experienced hair loss with both my kids oh wow hmm. mostly in like the mostly in the what do you call that um the edges area so with experiencing that, and I was buying all these milk drops that they sell on, I mean, you know, put it in your hair, and 90 days, your hair is down to your back. Oh, wow. <laughs> you know, even though, even though, we, even though we, you know, scientifically that doesn't happen, we believe yeah, it when we see yeah. it.
2: <laughs> so well, we fall for that all the time, we don't buy we? Those drops
6: <laughs> All the time, yes. And so I we also- buy the drops anyways, and I'm like...
2: I, I also noticed that it's not just, you're not just talking about adults. You also work with children, right? Because I think I see one of your posts on Facebook where you did braids for a little girl. Um, and it was so yes, pretty. Yes. So even though yes, you, you think it's painful and they would cry, but that one looked really nice. So how did you get a little girl to sit to do all those braids? What's your trick there? Um, you know, I'm, <laughs> I'm learning as
6: I go because every kid is different. Yeah. So you know, tablets, watch a movie. Sometimes parents standing right there, yeah. um, taking constant breaks, and you know, sometimes talking to with them. You're like, oh, you know, is this is this hurt? Are you okay? Mm-hmm. Another thing is also reminding them of how beautiful they are. Like yes. I always make them like, you know, you're such a, you know, you're so beautiful. Your yes. natural hair is beautiful. So you know, we're gonna, you know, sometimes they're like I don't like to brush my hair. I don't like to comb it. So I kind of have to explain to them. Well you put in these braids, guess what? You can go a whole month Mm -hmm. without having to brush or comb your hair. So, Mm -hmm. you know, it might hurt now, but it won't hurt for a whole month. And that helps. Mm -hmm. And, you know,
5: I've,
6: I've had little girls that came in that are like, I don't like my hair. And... Or I I wish I had, like, you know, a lot of the mixed children, I wish I had straight hair like mommy Mm -hmm. and not have the hair (laughs) that I have. And for me, like, instantly, I'm like, no, 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 no. Your hair is beautiful, and you have to remember how beautiful your hair is. Mm -hmm. It's different, but it's still beautiful. And I always remind little girls, like, you might not like it now because you don't know how to maintain it. But when you grow older, you're going to realize and grow such appreciation for the curls that you do have Mm -hmm. on your hair because at that point, you're going to learn how to maintain it and you're going to understand how your hair works. I so I always reinforce that. that. That's very important. <laughs> Definitely, yes. yes. My my I have my both my little ones have beautiful hair, and
5: yeah.
6: my fiance is Jamaican and I'm Haitian, but he has Indian in his lineage. So my kids came out with a kind of Indian type hair. Hey, I'm and Jamaican
2: too. So they have a really really tight really (laughs) Yeah,
6: my fiance is (laughs) jamaican yeah yeah so my little my little ones have really really curly hair yeah and they get scared you know they cry sometimes when i curl it like comb their hair but i you know i do daily affirmations with them like Mm -hmm. i remind them you're beautiful your curls are beautiful rock your curls i make sure you know they wear the little curly curls Mm -hmm. and every now and then i comb it up or braid it down but i always remind them like this is your hair and you know,
2: love it, love it the way so it is. For the for the people who are listening, tell them your hours and and um, remind them of your location again. It's one thirty one Cornelia Street. I apologize if you guys hear. The no, microphone. that's fine. The that's fine. This is this, we're, we're, we're kids friendly here. Yeah. <laughs> yes,
6: um, it's one thirty one Cornelia Street. Um, I was operating appointment only because it slowed down for January, but it started to pick back up. Uh-huh. So my hours Monday through Friday usually nine to six and on Saturday I do eight to four. Okay. okay. But for anyone that do want to get styled, um, I still do appointment only just because the, I don't want to keep people up. you know everybody has busy days and busy lives. Right. So and I do are you working alone
2: Do you work alone?
6: Yes. So for that, the yes, appointment is really necessary.
2: Then yes, appointment is definitely necessary.
6: Yes, so Yes. Exactly. That's so great. it flows, and everybody is in and out, and don't have to wait. Right. Right. Definitely.
4: And the telephone number they should use
6: to contact. The telephone you? number they should. Oh my god, I'm. I'm terrible. I should know this. I have. I, I, I think it's I have five one eight five six five
4: zero seven two three.
6: Yes, definitely. That's the number, and Mm -hmm. they can also visit. Um, if ever they have questions or they want to book a consultation or an appointment, I do have my website that is opulence. uh, I got to look that up too because my memory is terrible. Oh my god, this is so bad. (laughs) I have it at mysalononline.com.
2: Yeah. Okay, mysalononline.com. Right. Yeah, my www.mysalononline.com. Okay. Yes. Okay. Very good. Very good. Thank well, you. Well, yes. thank you so much. And again, and welcome you. to the town with your new business. And I hope you just stay busy so you won't go anywhere. <laughs> thank you very much. Yes. Okay. Thank you. And I appreciate the opportunity, guys. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. All the best. God bless. Thank you. Thanks. You take, take care. Bye. So
4: I learned about um, um business, her salon, Opulence Beauty, from a community member. Actually, a, um, a, another, a white person told me about her, said maybe you should check her out, so I did. And so I did go there, and I had my hair done. It felt so great to sit in her chair and just have somebody else's hands working my hair. She started with a um, aloe conditioning. And, you know, it was brilliant. And I just felt, it just reminded me of growing up when on special occasions, my mother would let me go to a hairstylist you know, beauty shop to get my hair mm-hmm. done. Mm-hmm. So it just took me back. You know, yes. it's like a comforting memory because, yes. you know, with the pandemic, we've all had many challenges and just, you know, mm-hmm. self-care. What is self-care? Self-care also means for me, letting someone else do my hair. Yes.
5: <laughs> <laughs>
0: I don't even have any hair, and I feel good listening to her.
2: (laughs) But what a lesson to learn from her to follow your dreams, follow your heart. Because um, she wanted to do this from such a long time ago. And waited and waited and waited. And and when your heart is somewhere else, it doesn't matter what you do, follow your dreams. And Mm -hmm. this is a perfect example of that, you know?
1: Yes, and I think it's important that she is willing to work with young children and instill in them the value of beauty. Yes. What's that song? It's a you are beautiful basically the way you are. That's right. right. Mm -hmm. That's right. So um, that's really needed the most, I think. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, we're glad she's here.
0: Absolutely. (laughs) And I will definitely be Talking to my daughter to see if she wants to get her hair braided. You know? All
1: right. Great.
0: And I think that's uh, this a great way to kind of you know, wrap up our first show in a while. Yeah. You know some some great guests, and it's great seeing all of you. It's good to be you back. You know again? Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. And I think we've got some exciting stuff uh, planned in the, the very near future. Yes. Okay. Yes
1: we do. Right.
0: Fantastic. <laughs> We at the North Country Underground Railroad Historical Association thank you for listening to this episode of the Adirondack Lantern Podcast In journeying through yesteryear and now as the North Star Underground Railroad Museum at our Sable chasm keeps the lantern burning, lighting Freedom's Road.